It's Friday, October 17th, 2014, and you're listening to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast, available on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our weekly updates and review the show. You can also reach us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and senior editor, here as always with Ann Thompson. And while we've been talking about the New York Film Festival for the last couple of weeks, it's finally behind us. That being said, there was one more film when we spoke last week we were anticipating and hadn't seen yet, so we need to just jump right into this one. It's actually opening next week, so the timing is just right. And that's Citizen Four, Laura Poitras' documentary about the Edward Snowden story, um, which is as thrilling and, and exciting and uh, sort of uh, a landmark experience, for me at least, as, as, as I think we all expected it to be. You know, it was just, the movie is, it, it fleshes out what you thought you knew about Edward Snowden while also sort of broadening the scope of the story to be more about kind of the, the value of his discoveries, but it, but it plays almost like this John le Carre spy novel, as, as someone actually says in the film, and it's just... It was. It's definitely one of the highlights of my viewing experiences this year, just because it doesn't even feel like a documentary. It just feels like a great movie. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, what's really, uh, you, you know, when you sit there, uh, you know, she introduces you to some of the, the you know, emails that she reads them herself, even though she doesn't put herself in the movie. I, I found the whole thing, I got to talk to her this week, and I found... I, I found the whole thing really fascinating because she had to make an, a number of decisions, you know, to bring in Glenn G- Greenwald, who becomes the journalist on the on point, and he, she's filming. She's in the room. She's the only crew person. She's got the camera. She's there, and you feel you feel her. You see a glimpse of her in a mirror, you know, but you feel her presence at the same time that she's not the active uh, journalist on the case, and and. You, it hits you. It just hits you in the gut when you first realize before, because we saw it simultaneously in LA and New York, and a number of people were at screenings that were at the same time, um, without, you know, having read anything. I mean, how rare is that? She kept this thing so under wraps and, and, you know, negotiate. She made Tom Quinn from, from, uh, radius go to berlin in order to to you know see footage she didn't show the whole film to anybody she redacted stuff right when I mean, the new york film festival yeah fascinating. The, the new york film festival screened it in august and the, there's a final scene in the movie that reveals you know a new whistleblower and some other right. information and they they said that all that information was actually covered up with black bars when they watched <laughs> it so you know i mean it is it is a, a pretty daring feat not only because she's putting herself at this tremendous risk, but it's such a it's such a well constructed movie that it, it's it's sort of the the challenge of, of making anything under wraps is one thing, but to to do it this well, I think it's, it's another step in the equation. You know, they, the you could tell somebody spent a really long time thinking through this movie and working with a sort of circle of trust to kind of arrive at a cut that that does feel very satisfying, and also. Almost nonpartisan, in spite of the fact that clearly she sides with this guy. I mean, I, I think that 
it'll be interesting to sort of watch the ripple effect of the conversations around this movie in a sense because it allows you to see Snowden as a guy who's who's clearly believing in what he's doing. He doesn't harbor he's an any. idealist. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. And that's part of the fascination. You're in the room as he's unveiling all of his information. You're in the room while they're trying to figure out where he's coming from. The camera is filming him live as he's giving the information to the journalists. You know? It's just insane. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what's great about it is I saw it in Alice Tully Hall at the New York Film Festival, you know, with a huge crowd. And there's this one moment in the movie where he sits down into the frame that we've seen before because there was that one video that Greenwald posted on The Guardian that was an interview with Snowden when he revealed That's his her identity. Video. That's, That's her video. video. So when you see that video start to happen, there was sort of, around me there was sort of like a gasp of sort exactly. of, oh, that's, that's how it happened. About. Right. That's the moment. That's the, that's the uh, aha moment that just hits you in the gut when you realize you're watching this whole thing unfold live. The one thing I will say about the movie is that it is to some degree unfinished by design, you know? I mean, it's like, who knows what's going to happen next with both Snowden and with this situation. And so you do, it does leave you in this weird state of uncertainty where it's like, okay, we know a lot of the stuff that's already in this movie, at least in, in a general sense. You know, is it actually a work of activism that's telling you something you don't know, or is it more just sort of reflecting a lot of the anxieties that came out of this story? And so there is sort of a, an interesting conversation to be had about, you know, would somebody who wasn't, let's say, as close to the subject as, as Laura was, uh, you know, made a different kind of movie that, that you know, gave us more of a, a finality to, to what we're supposed to take out of this? I would give, I would say that part of what I was interested to talk to her about, um, and I, ha- I have to put the interview up, uh, and I was, I was fascinated by some of her answers, is that because she was on a watch list and because she was treated so badly at the borders, and every time she came into an airport, every time she entered the country, you know, for so long, it heightened her uh, own paranoia and sense of, of concern about her, of the security of the film. And, and so she shot it in Berlin. And I, I do think that that wariness and, and lack of security, you know, that sense, we, I think most of us who live in America walk around feeling fairly secure that, that the government is on our side on some level, even, even those of us who, who, who should have a healthy, uh, respect for, for where the government doesn't look out for us. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's interesting that she comes from that perspective on this particular subject, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, you know, with with Laura, you know, we we know sort of her perspective and how she formed her paranoia, or however you want to characterize it. Paranoia is so a strong word. Strong I, word. I know that's probably too strong. But but in any case, Snowden himself remains something of a mystery in the film. I mean. It's it's funny that Oliver Stone is is you know working on this narrative feature with Joseph Gordon-Levitt set to play the guy because I wonder you know if it's even possible to get to that real story of how this guy you know evolved his his or developed his worldview because you know he says in the film that he's not the story and she respects that and that sort of determines the kind of movie we end up watching but he's so eloquent and and does such a great job of sort of explaining exactly why he's doing this and why he's giving the information to journalists 
And so it and why he's you- willing to be up front. Now, she had to talk him into being on camera. That was a big move. So right, but the question he is, wanted who to give is her an on the record thing. He wanted to be identified. That was right. the decision that was so radical. He didn't he, have to he do. He is identified, but I would say that you know, this, this, if people go to this movie hoping to figure out more of who Snowden is, they aren't going. They to. aren't going. I mean, you, but you see he him, is but. accessible in Moscow, and that one of the big reveals is is that his girlfriend is is with him in, in Moscow. That's been reported since the the movie was seen. Right. Um, but but the point is, you know, he will be accessible to people. He's still going to be on the case doing interviews. And, and so I'm hoping there are going to be more interviews with him that will dig deeper into into who he really is. I agree with you. Well, and certainly if, if Radius is really going to kick up their Oscar campaign, they could probably use him as, as one of their spokespeople. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the documentary Oscar race. I mean... Until Citizen Four showed up, I think a lot of people were saying that Life itself was a front runner. This obviously shook things up a little bit more. But one of the more interesting developments this past week was that we got the lineup for Doc NYC, which is coming up around the corner, and, and that I think will bring a whole new set of possibilities to the table, wouldn't you say? Well, what you have with a with a situation like like the 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 Docs is that you have these different. You have a doc uh, branch of the academy, which has expanded considerably over the last couple of years of all the branches of the academy. This is the one that has had the most, proportionally, the most new members invited. And they have to break down all of the films and, and, to, and see, you know, try to see as many as they can. And there's 150 or something. I mean, there's a lot of films and there's so many worthy ones. So a festival like Doc NYC or what happens with the awards at the International Documentary Association, or with AJ Schnack's, um, what's it called? The, the, the Cinema Eye uh, Awards. Cinema Eye Awards. All of these different things become, you know, someone like Tom Powers, who programs um, Toronto, or, or the people at Sundance who program the docs. There, there's a high proportion of Sundance docs that ends up end up in the uh, Oscar race every year. So, it's it becomes a kind of a um, a curation, a selection process. Uh, what are the films that the people in the doc branch going to actually watch? What's going to dictate what they see? And and there's some that they have to, and there's some that they voluntarily watch. And and it's just a it's a very um, uh, it's such a huge list that a thing like Doc NYC, if it puts focus on something like uh, Rory Kennedy's, you know, Last Days in Vietnam, or or the film that's going to open it, uh, do Do I Sound Gay? You know, suddenly these films get a higher profile, and they may become more. What What finally, as far as Oscars are concerned, what finally matters is which films do the people in the branch actually see. But isn't it the entire Academy that votes on this category now? You have the nomination process. That's the first thing that happens. Right. And then you have the actual voting. Right. So and, it's the question those of what's are two gonna, very different right. things. It really is a question of what's going to wind up on that short list right That's now. Right. I mean, That's I would right. say, you know, it's, it, to me, it seems like a no-brainer that Citizen Four is n- nevertheless still, you know. Oh, like they sort of admire the, her I mean, so much. They do. So, she's won the IDA, you know, 
courage under fire award and blah blah blah. I mean, the it's no there's no questions no question that the people on this uh, committee are very uh, uh, respectful of her. But you know, life itself continues to be this very effective tearjerker, and you can't discount that. You know, and then and there are other things out there. I mean, the um, Elaine Stritch documentary being another example. You know, because its subject was very well liked and passed away in this past year, which, you know, for better or worse, does impact the way that something can be perceived. And it's actually a very good movie. So that's one that I would I would throw out there. And, you know, the, I haven't seen Last Days of Vietnam. I understand it's a little bit more traditional in some ways, but that, that could also be one because of its, you know, issue. I would say that what's interesting about that is that she believes rigorously in primary sources and she believes rigorously in not narrating. You know, and so she, the, the remarkable achievement of that film is how that story gets told directly, you know, without any intermediaries. It, it's like the opposite of what Kim Burns does mm. you know, in those Roosevelt things where you're just sort of, your eyes, every night I would watch one of those. They're very well done. I'm not putting him down at, at all, but, but that, you know, the, the intoning voice of Peter Coyote put me to sleep more than one night during that series, you know. Right, right. Well, so going be, moving beyond um, documentaries. And by the way, what do you think of Neil Patrick Harris as the Oscar host? Oh, God, we have to dig into that briefly, don't we? Well, I mean, honestly, my first reaction was, shouldn't he have done this like five years ago? I mean, he's just like such a perfect option. In in a sense, you know, he, he did because he opened the Oscars a couple of years back when um, Alec Baldwin and... Um, Hugh uh, Jackman. No, it wasn't. It was. It was Steve uh, Martin. Steve Martin and, and, and Alec Baldwin did it together, and he was sort of the the opener. And we got a, a real sense for you know, obviously he could he can deliver. So I think you know it's sort of a no brainer that that's a good choice. You know, and it's, but you uh, know you know why he finally can be, and why he couldn't be before. It has to do with having movie cred. Hmm. And if you think about Neil Patrick Harris, he's been the Emmy host, he's been the Tony host, he can do the singing, he can do the dancing, he's a great host, that's not the issue. So the once issue you play a slime bag in a David Fincher movie, then all of a sudden you Now he can do right. it, yeah. It's that simple. Now he's in a hit movie. You know, each week it seems like you come back to this conversation, there's maybe a tiny bit more information that may or may not be reliable, that changes things. I mean, in my case, I know we keep saying, like, boyhood is a frontrunner, boyhood is a frontrunner. I have to tell you, I went to see Birdman again at the New York Film Festival closing night, you know, and I really got a sense that this movie delivers in a way that I think boyhood it doesn't for as many people, even though I think... Ooh, I'm going to disagree with you there. I'm going to... I'll tell you something. My, one of the things about that I love about this season is that I'm take, I, I, I run the class that I do, the, the, the sneak previews series where, where, we, where it's, a bunch, it's a bunch of subscribers from the west side of L.A., you know, film buffs, and 500 of them sit in a room and watch everything. And they're not the same as the Academy, but they're not that different, in a way, from them. And... They're kind of what you would call your your target Weinstein Co. Fox Searchlight Sony Pictures Classics audience. You know, pretty sophisticated, um, but but in a weird way, adult mainstream at the same time, which is what the Academy is. If you if you really take the whole aggregate 
from the mainstream branches of the academy to the much more um, sophisticated crafts branches, because you have publicists and you have producers and you have um, executives as well as all the people who do sound and, and costumes and directors and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a very complicated set of mixes of people and different, you know, the actors are the biggest branch. If you, if you look at um, the difference between boyhood and Birdman, if that's what you're bringing up, I will argue very strenuously that boyhood is way more mainstream. It, it, it may seem uh, odd to say that about Richard Linklater and such a strangely unique movie, but but it touches the heart. It's it's very very much about all of us. Anyone who's been a parent, anyone who's been a, a child, it, who's grown up, it's it's so universal. Oh yeah. The thing about Look. Birdman is that Birdman is actually very much inside the industry. It's 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 very harsh and edgy, and and very very sophisticated about its techniques. And what we find exhilarating, or Manola Dargis, who raved about it in the New York Times today, we we all share the excitement of what he's what Inaritu has accomplished and how good the acting is and how challenging it was for them to perform under those single take conditions, you know, long, single, long, long take conditions. But that, that, that is not mainstream Birdman. I can tell you by how it played for my class. But I have to, I mean, I, that's, that's an interesting point, but I, but I, what I'm thinking in terms of is there's a distinction between, you know, what people can appreciate and what they can kind of agree on as, you know, sort, sort of a, a, a more, effective uh, piece of storytelling and i think the the what's interesting is that effective boyhood, to whom well that's a that's an interesting question because i mean i personally boyhood effective is, to you a film critic the I, critics are going to rave oh, about this i think boyhood that's not is the a, issue boyhood is the best movie of the year and and and, and birdman is, is very accomplished but i think that birdman is is more of, of an overwhelming experience as just sort of like a cinematic experience that people get really excited about and boyhood is more contemplative, and that seems like a bigger challenge for people. I'm not saying that it's not in the race. I'm just saying that it maybe that that makes it harder for some people to get as enthusiastic because Birdman right, invites hyperbole. There's, yeah, I gotcha. There's a long process ahead of us. So the critics are going to weigh in, but the critics are influential. You know, you're a member of the New York film critics group which has decided to vote on december 1st and that's one of several you know there's a you're part of the gotham apparently you're you're voting on on gotham films as well so so that has more impact obviously on the independent spirit awards than it does on the oscars but but it's it's there's all the kudos all the things that win all the momentum that builds up over time Birdman opens to great reviews. Then the film critics say, Michael Keaton gives the best performance. Or they say, say, uh, you know, suddenly someone, some Jake Gyllenhaal gets anointed or, or they decide that, that it's not Michael Keaton. Uh, it's, it's actually Benedict Cumberbatch for the imitation game. You know, somehow that, you know, there's a race and, and, but the momentum builds and suddenly Birdman really is at the top of the heap in, in, in two months. But, but we have to see how that plays out and we still haven't seen interstellar which is on the cover of ew uh, we still haven't seen um exodus which they showed some footage from yesterday over at fox which looks pretty damn spectacular but i still need to see the whole movie 
before I know whether it's the deal, whether it's Gladiator or not, okay. you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm skeptical, but you never know. I mean, we still haven't seen um, Angelina Jolie's Unbroken. We haven't seen Into the Woods. I mean, who knows, you know? I mean, the field is, is in a sense, wide open and yet at the same time feels narrow just because of what we have to work with. Um, but it, but it's interesting because it's actually this week is the 20th anniversary of the opening of Pulp Fiction, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, you know the sort of the award season when that movie came out because you know it, that was a major movie and remains a major movie for a lot of people. But it's you know it, it didn't win Best Picture, it didn't win Best Actor, it only won Best Screenplay. So do, do you recall that being a movie where people were sort of did, did it seem like it was sort of a front runner more than it actually ended up to be being? What happened with that is um, it was a little bit like Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I mean, it was something that became a big deal at Cannes, and it won the Palme d'Or right. at Cannes. And I interviewed <laughs> Tarantino, you know, sitting on, on a you know, on a, uh, under an umbrella on the beach outside of the, the Carlton, you know, that I'll vividly remember that, but, but, um, for EW, when I worked at EW and, and so we did a big, a big story on, on, on Pulp Fiction for, for EW. So he hit the mainstream and it became a big, a big hit and it did get nominated and, and that was his first Oscar winning the, the screenplay. But, um, uh, back then, Tarantino wasn't Tarantino. What's so interesting is that in 20 years, instead of being a sort of edgy outside, you know, writer-director, sort of indie, he was an indie. Uh, he was Weinstein. He was Miramax. You know, he was Harvey Weinstein's boy. Then, you know, he was young. He was he was changing the. Uh, I mean, Bruce Willis put up on on Twitter a picture of him and and Tarantino on the set of Pulp Fiction twenty years ago. It, it was a you know a radical new narrative. It was a, a structured screenplay with time being manipulated in unusual ways. It was dialogue that you'd never heard before. It was violence like you'd never heard before. Um, it was seen before. So it, it, you know he he became so influential that he changed the way that movies were made after that. And there was a host of imitation. To, to follow. But now, Carantino's more like um, Scorsese. He's right. the guy that knows all the films. He's so revered. He's so respected. He's almost like an establishment figure. He now. is. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, I guess a blessing and a curse when you're in that stage of your career. Although, you know, he, he's been doing pretty well for himself lately. So um, it's an interesting kind of situation in that respect. Um, but, you know, I, I was just thinking about that in light of, some, you know, the conversations we're having here, you know, I mean, you have like this, something major like Boyhood and then something that's a good time like Birdman and, and so forth. And I'm trying to, you know, think in terms of, you know, in 20 years, are we going to be talking about these movies as being, you know, sort of neck and neck in a similar kind of way? Or like, are, are they going to have the same sort of currency? I mean, to me, it seems like people are still going to sort of revere Boyhood and Birdman may look a little different than it does now because it's so of the moment. And so, you know, Pulp Fiction, I, I, I watched it, I would say, about a year ago or so. It, it feels incredibly vibrant and, and uh, you know, contemporary. So it's just, um, you know, we get so lost in these conversations about the Oscar race, it's, it's hard to kind of pull yourself out of it and think about it from a historical dimension, you know, what has staying power. Well, it's it's a question of remembering where something was at the time. I mean, I will say this, they have been pushing pretty hard um, 
you know, even though the academy is still very old and very white and very male, I mean, that's clearly the case, they're pushing really hard to shift, um, push the new, you know, Ava DuVernay is a member, Beyonce is a member, you know, you, you, Prince is a member, you know, they're trying really hard to, to, to open it up to a much wider swath of, of younger and, and, and uh, more varied uh, people. And, and I think that's obviously a, a very good thing. Um, is the you know it, but the, but the, the there there still is a mainstream uh, academy and there's there's still a sense that the movie that touches the heartstrings is, is is has the advantage over just about every other movie but then they vote for Hurt Locker so what do you know <laughs> okay so let's turn to movies that are opening this week sort of shifting back to the present moment there's a lot of stuff I mean we've talked about Birdman several times on this podcast and, and we're both fans but that just scratches the surface of a, of a pretty rich week do you want to uh, share your pick first uh, I, I'm I'm totally on board with Birdman. I mean, it's it's got to be seen. Uh, I liked Fury. I, I think Fury is a really here's the thing. If you like a World War II action movie, and you're and you like Brad Pitt, and and, and you want to be in a tank, and you want to be aiming the guns at at Germans, go for it. You know, it's really fun if if you like that kind of movie. Um, is it an Oscar contender? No. Uh, not, not not necessary for that to be part of the conversation. Well, I'm not going to get dragged into that one because if people want to hear it, <laughs> they, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much on the record not being a big fan. What is your recommendation? Well, the movie that, I mean, there's a lot that I think is actually relatively interesting this week. There's a really wacky vamp New York vampire drama horror comedy called Summer of Blood that I think is worth checking out. It's also going to be on VOD. So that's one of, if you're looking for something kind of light and silly, I would recommend, but a more sophisticated comedy is Listen Up, Philip, another New York movie uh, from Alex Ross Perry, who made a movie called The Color Wheel a couple of years ago. Jason Schwartzman, in, in his first really central lead role, I would say, since Rushmore, as this kind of bitter young writer, total egomaniac, kind of an awful guy who's in a relationship with a, a, a woman played by Elizabeth Moss, and he's got this book coming out. He forms a, a, a friendship with this older cantankerous writer played by Jonathan Price. Uh, Read kind of, Philip Roth. Basically a Philip Roth character. Um, and over the course of the movie, we kind of get drawn into to Philip's worldview and, and, and try to understand, you know, why is he such a, a loathsome, bitter person at this stage of his life? And um, I've seen the movie twice. I, I think, it, you know, it challenges you because the protagonist is so inherently unlikable. But at the same time, there's something really smart and savvy about how it allows you to to see this character from a certain sympathetic angle, I think, because it portrays the, the creative mind as this contradictory state where on the one hand you're trying to do something that's, you know, that has permanence and beauty and, and sophistication. And at the same time, you're totally driven by your own sort of cult of personality. And I think the movie... Ego. 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 Use the word. The, mo the movie hovers in that state really interestingly. And when I saw it the second time, I found a lot of the details of the way it does that to be incredibly effective, including the voiceover, which to some degree is act it's almost like it's him hearing the voiceover of his own life because he's so stuck in his own story. And I thought there was something very astute and interesting about it. You know, not, not everybody's going to respond to this character, but I think that 
there's something very honest about the way it represents that situation. I think he's forgiving the the characters and 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 allowing them, you know, to to have permission to be loathsome in it, because they're artists because they get away with it, you know. And and I found that really horrible. Well, uh, don't forget, to, there's to also a, a digression in the film where it goes away from his character and sticks with Elizabeth Moss's character for a while and sort of shows how she's able to, to liberate herself from the, this guy. You know, so it's thank not, God, thank God, she was there. I, I I was sorry when she left. Well, it's a really interesting moment. I mean, I think it's she's great in the movie. It's one of the one of the better supporting performances of the year, although. The movie doesn't qualify for the Oscars because it's going on VOD before its L.A. release. It probably wouldn't be part of that conversation anyway. But I think, you know, if if people like her on, let's say, Mad Men, they should definitely see this movie because it's a really different kind of performance. But the movie as a whole, I mean, and full disclosure, I've known Alex Ross Perry for a couple of years, although it was through the lens of we're New York movie people, and, and he wanted me to see some of his earlier movies. He did a, a kind of riff on, on Gravity's Rainbow called Impolex a number of years back, and then The Color Wheel, which was sort of a sleeper hit on the festival circuit, in some ways kind of an homage to Jerry Lewis movies. Um, and it's, it's been really interesting to track uh, his sensibilities because, you know, it's not a full-on sort of assaultive style to storytelling, but it is sort of a willingness to explore characters that mainstream American cinema would very rarely put on screen, although Birdman is an interesting exception. So. I would say Birdman does the same material much better well, and, and, and examines it in a much more um, effective and entertaining way. And and I have to say on the second viewing of Birdman, I was um, I was much more taken with the performances. I mean, I, I, I got past the single takes and the, the what was real and what was magic and what was, you know, in his head and what wasn't. I, you know, all those things that you're trying to figure out on the first pass. On the second pass, I was very impressed by Michael Keaton's performance and, and what he uh, was, was, what the movie's about, you know, which is all about redemption and, and acceptance and validation from outside and pushing for, for art over commerce and all of those things that that someone like Inaritu admittedly, you know, was grappling with at the time of his 50th birthday. Well, it's, uh, you know, my my take on this whole thing is they'd make a terrific double bill. So, you know, if people are intrigued, they should uh, maybe see Philip first and then Birdman to sort of compare and contrast, because I would say Philip is a starting point. Birdman is, is maybe the full meal. But in, in any case, there is almost this, like, aesthetic of, uh, you know, awfulness, you know, in American cinema right now, where it's like challenging you to deal with somebody's creative crisis. And it's like, how far is too far before you're kind of like frustrated with these people and sort of fed up with their vanity? Or is there something that's just universally relatable about that, that we're afraid to confront in these movies put front and center in a really interesting way? Did you want to plug Book of Life as well? Oh, well, as far as the animation race is concerned, um, uh, I saw two more entries. Uh, the Guillermo del Toro produced Book of Life, which is uh, a stunningly beautiful uh, uh, evocation of Mexico and uh, the Day of the Dead and uh, the myths behind uh, Mexico, you know, the underworld and, and all the different parts of the underworld and the different gods and goddesses that are part of that. Uh, almost, uh, you know, re- reminiscent of ancient Greece, but but their own version uh, of that. And, and uh, I really um, enjoyed the movie. Uh, it, it's got some 
some great voices. It's got Diego Luna as the as the romantic uh, singing bullfighter, and it's got uh, Channing Tatum as the warrior hero. And they're both in love with the same woman, played by Zoe Saldana. And and the the way that it works, uh, the the filmmaker uh, draws the the uh, male characters, and his wife draws the female characters because if he were to draw them. They would be sexist. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. Uh, the idea that that uh, the woman uh, m- made sure the w- the women in the movie looked looked reasonably uh, sane and wonderful, and, and it works. It's a it's a it's a lot of fun. And then I also saw Big Hero Six, which is um, even better. Uh, it's Disney's entry this year, um, and it is very much designed from uh, a Japanese perspective, and it has um, a great deal of, of beautiful Asian characters and influences, um, and, and there's a great uh, animated sidekick called um, Bazemax, and uh, it's, it's basically a, a white uh, Pillberry Doughboy uh, Pillsbury Doughboy um, nurses aide that is uh, the young character uh, recruits to to help him uh, battle the 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 bad guys and there's a it's a it's a superhero myth as well as a group of of, of techies uh, band together to to and and use their technological uh, inventions to uh, be their uh, tools as as superheroes and it's it's just delightful I I highly recommend both of them and I think they'll both be um, joining uh, Lego movie and uh how to train your dragon 2 in the uh, animation race well i i admit i haven't seen uh, big hero 6 yet so i can't debate that one with you but hopefully in the next week so that uh, the next time we regroup we can dig deeper into the animation race the same way we have the documentaries but until then and i think that we've covered a lot of ground this week and we've got lots to do before the weekend kicks in so take it easy and uh hope that uh, the next week brings a lot more for us to talk about Baby, i'm sitting here awake and alone i just need a cigarette i love the Between the blinds If every friend's a stranger We should really stay behind Same, same.